you know, our Facebook group is called Sweep by Red Wine and Blue. And Sweep stands for Suburban Women Empowered, Engaged, and Pissed. And we say that, you know, we were successful in sweeping out Trump. Now it's time to sweep out Trumpism. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Katie Paris, is the founder of Red Wine and Blue, an organization focused on mobilizing suburban women. Katie entered progressive politics as a campaign researcher, became part of the founding of Media Matters and some of its associated organizations, including serving as CEO of the progressive publication, The American Independent. We had a good conversation about her path in the progressive political ecosystem and what she's up to at Red Wine and Blue. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Katie Paris at Red Wine and Blue. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Katie, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Thank you so much for having me on. My name is Katie Paris, and I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and North Carolina, but now I live in the great state of Ohio. I live in Shaker Heights, a suburb outside of Cleveland, where my husband grew up. Great, diverse public schools, and so I think probably sometime around my second date, with my, who is now my husband, back in our Washington, D.C. days, I, I thought, hmm, looks like I might be moving to Ohio one day. <laughs> uh, and that's what we did. But um, we met in D.C. about 20 years ago. Is he a political person also? He is. He certainly is. Um, it, it, it runs strong in this family. When we lived in Washington, he worked on the Senate Judiciary Committee mostly um, under Senator Patrick Leahy's leadership for most of the time that we were there together. How did you get into the world of politics? I started volunteering on campaigns when I was very young. I think that my mom took me to phone bank for Michael Dukakis. I would have been about nine years old. And it was in that context that I convinced my first voter to vote for Michael Dukakis. And I found that to be very inspiring, that you could make change through building relationships and person to person. And so the, the bug bit me early on. By the time I was 11, living in North Carolina, I was volunteering regularly every week to try to defeat Jesse Helms, um, working for Harvey Gantt for Senate, who would have been our first Black senator from North Carolina since Reconstruction. Somehow I'd convinced my high school to actually give me course credit for 
volunteering for Herbie Gant and coordinating volunteers. Um, so I was active in college. And lo and behold, wouldn't you guess it, my very first job out of college was, yes, working on a campaign. That was an off year, 2001, just like 2021. This is the anniversary of my 20th year of working in politics, I should say. We're heading into, I worked on the New Jersey governor's race that year. Wow. Uh, Who was running then? It was Jim McGreevy running against Brett Schindler. Uh, Yeah. McGreevy had a checkered course through the government there. One thing I, something I would not have predicted there in my very young life headed into politics, but yes, things got interesting for him. How did you land in the research part of the field? So I was a researcher early on there in campaigns. And to be honest, I was just interviewing to work in politics. I was talking to you know, the Virginia governor's race, the New Jersey governor's race, because those were the two statewide races in town. And ultimately, I was offered either a field position knocking on doors in Virginia, or a position sitting in the communications office at headquarters in New Jersey, doing opposition research and self-research on that campaign and working with their top-level consultants, understanding um, debate prep, creating ads for television and radio, understanding day-to-day what was being said on the campaign trail and how that lined up with what our opponent had said previously and what was in his record. And that just you know, was very interesting to me intellectually. And again, the idea of being able to make a difference in such a tangible way simply by being the one to be in the know and do the work, <laughs> work seven days a week sometimes. Back then, of course, we the, the internet was not at all what it is today. So we would read our clips and print them out and highlight key things that were happening day to day in the campaigns back then. So things have changed a lot. I noticed uh, from your sort of resume up on LinkedIn that you were in and out and in and out of Media Matters. What is Media Matters? For those people who don't know, what was your role there over time? Yes, Media Matters has played a a very cool role in the development of my career. So I worked on campaigns through the early 2000s. And then in uh, 2004, I had been working on the John Edwards 2004 presidential race in North Carolina. And I was considering, oh, should I go to the Kerry campaign? And along comes someone who reached out to me with the business plan for Media Matters before it existed. David Brock, who's the founder, had written a a business plan for creating um, a new media watchdog that would provide progressive infrastructure so that we would be watching the media day in and day out and collecting uh, nonstop research on what the other side was saying and research to, to hold conservative media accountable. And that was so compelling to me because I was used to working on campaigns where you work really hard through election day and then it's kind of over and then you recreate the wheel again for the next election cycle. So I was very drawn to this idea of creating infrastructure. And so I went and interviewed. I found him to be very compelling with his whole history of being a conservative and then switching sides due to for, for some pretty deeply personal reasons. As someone who was raised in the South with a lot of conservatives in my family, I think I just found that 
very compelling. And he was just extremely smart and thinking about these problems in sophisticated ways. And so I was drawn to um, working at Media Matter. So I became the first research director there, hired a staff, and we, we got it off the ground very quickly and launched. And then I was drawn back into campaigns and then Media Matters again. I just, I, I'm, so, I'm so interested in doing lots of things. I think I'm ultimately sort of an entrepreneur in this space at heart. So I loved starting Media Matters. And then I, I missed campaigns and went back into those for a while. And then I ended up starting an, another new organization called Faith in Public Life, where we were um, really trying to push back against the, the right wing's hijacking of religion, which, which I think is problematic in our, in our discourse and in the political landscape. And I also took really personally as someone who was raised in the South. My dad was a pastor for 17 years. I don't believe that one party owns God or values. And then um, Media Matters itself has been an entrepreneurial um, organization in terms of creating other new organizations. So I, I was involved in um, in some of those as well. And so I just had the privilege of, I think, having been there at the beginning, I sort of be, I was looked to as someone who was great at helping them start new things. And I loved doing that. One of the things that I, I really enjoy exploring in this podcast is that kind of notion of political entrepreneurship. And you know, I've wandered through Media Matters uh, when it seemed like it was tons of people at their desks working really hard, you know, lots of tech for tracking different TV shows and things like that. What was it like in the earliest days? And what did you learn about starting organizations from that experience? Yeah, less big. That's for sure. Our first research staff, I, I think we launched with either six or eight on the research staff. And now I think the team there is around 80. Um, and there were, you know, TVs lined up on top of filing cabinets and, and things like that. Things were less digitized. But what I learned that has influenced me throughout my career is the importance of clearly identifying a gap something that needs to be done, um, a need, you know, that is not being met within the movement and, and just really defining it clearly and then consistently showing up to fill that gap every single day. You know, when we launched Media Matters and we, we essentially came out and said, you know, conservative misinformation isn't a problem every now and then, it's a problem every day. Fox News and these other conservative outlets are lying to us every day. It's not an exception to the rule when they do that. It's just what they're doing. And that was a bit of a novel concept. People believe there's misinformation out there, but they had not yet accepted that there was a misinformation machine. And so that was what we set out to show every single day and to not only show that these lies were happening, but then to provide the information that could actually bring light. One of the things that is just, frustrating about that is for as much as good work that media matters did and does that that machine continues and maybe is a great success story on the right you know like the fact that they can continue to shape the opinions of so many people for ill i believe how do you understand that development in our country how despite the watchdogs and despite the evidence about what they're doing, that they just keep going? 
well, this has everything to do with what I am doing today. My latest uh, project of entrepreneurship in the political space, which I have you know, never felt more aligned in terms of who I am personally with what I'm doing professionally. I founded Red Wine and Blue in 2019 to engage and mobilize suburban women. So, hey, that's what I am. I'm a mom living in the suburbs and I am owning it because we have a lot of work to do. Um, and the suburbs are the battleground and we have got to push back because the reality is exactly as you say. There is a conservative infrastructure both in terms of organizing and communications, the conservative media has so much to do with that, that really operates in a top-down sense. You know, there really is Fox News at the, at the top of that media food chain. It's There's so much more than Fox News, and it only becomes more vast every single year. But I do think it's important to understand the way that communications and, and media operates on the left versus the right. And it is very, very top-down when it comes to the conservative media infrastructure. You know, there was a survey years back that I think about all the time that asked, I don't know if it was Republicans or people who identify with the right or whatever, what do you look to for your information and news? And across the board, the top answer was Fox News. And then people on the left were asked the exact same question, and the answer was Google. Okay, so on the one hand, you have this very top down, give us our marching orders, whether that, you know, today is Fox News or any of the other of these right wing outlets um, that have massive audiences. That's just not going to work the same way on the left. People want to seek out information, filter through information and make some of their own decisions. Now, you could look at that and just say, okay, well, then we're, we're powerless. But I actually see an opportunity for power therein. But we have to understand how to tap into that power. I believe that we, the people, are the communications infrastructure. But the Democrats have made a mistake cycle after cycle after cycle of investing literally billions of dollars into paid media, last-minute investments in the, in the weeks, sometimes, you know, months leading up to election cycles where we're running these paid TV ads and we expect for voters to feel very close to us. And of course, when we pass these policies and we're telling you about them in TV ads, so vote for us. Um, whereas conservatives are communicating year round, every day, day in and day out, building relationships with audiences, niche audiences, creating you know, a, a sense of, of a home for people online, through media, and not just to get their media that way, but also providing venues for people to connect with each other. They're creating a sense of community. Media Matters, I, I've heard the constellation of organizations around that as referred to as like Brock World. You know, there's like, there's a bunch of them. There's opposition research type things. One of the ones that came out of that is called American Independent, um, which is I think it had been share blue. It had been a number of, uh, under a different number of different names. Uh, what is that? And what was your role in that particular news organ? Yeah, it's American independent, which was previously known as share blue is a progressive media outlet and it has massive following and influence on social media, Facebook in particular. I was leading that for several years. Um, 
I took the helm actually immediately after sometime right around Trump's election. So it was a pretty exciting time to be providing news, covering that which progressives cared about. I mean, the the content that we found was always highest performing, was that which was not just pointing out all of the daily outrages that were coming out of the Trump White House and that movement, but it was really those news items that were showing people fighting back. It was that sense of empowerment that we all were getting from, you know, linking up arms and saying, we're not going to take this. This isn't, this isn't us. This isn't America. So the role of uh, the American independent is really to be a news outlet for people like you and me who, you know, ever since uh, Trump's election have been seeking a voice of our own and wanting to have that fight back reflected Um, in our news coverage, because so much of the time there's the right wing propaganda machine. And then there there is some progressive media for sure now that's evolved over the last especially 15 years. Um, Then there's a mainstream media, but there's nothing on the left um, that exists to be the same propaganda. And that's the, the right. And that's not what American independent is either. But it is there to reliably cover what is going on and the progressive movement and what progressives want to know. Um, It's not doing the both sides sort of coverage. The reason why I thought it was such an important piece of the infrastructure to come on onto the scene, especially at the time it did, is because, you know, calling out what's wrong with the right wing media isn't enough. We have to tell our own stories. We have to fill those gaps ourselves. We can't just all the time be saying, no, that's wrong. No, that's extreme. We have to be putting out our own very good information and doing so proactively and building audiences who we can equip with that information as well. So did you have um, reporters? Did you just link to stories in progressive world? What did it take to put together what people saw, what people read? Yeah, we had reporters. Um, And, you know, it's still going, going strong today. But yeah, it's I mean, it's a it's a news outlet and with a strong affinity to truth and facts, but um, choosing what we would cover based on once again, where we saw the gaps were in terms of what progressives were seeking from their news. I've heard people say that it's harder to start that kind of enterprise on the left than on the right. Much more success in conservative talk radio, much more success in other different parts of conservative news because they they have a formula sometimes based on fear sometimes based on other kinds of grievance or agitation or whatever that people seem to follow whereas maybe the love side if that's the progressive side has more of a challenge but what did you learn from running that about what actually got followed what people wanted to consume on the left. Yeah, I did learn that there is, in fact, a way to create engaging content that is truthful. (laughs) And that's really important. Um, We do know that the right wing outlets favor just absolute outrage fueled by mistruth after lie. Um, and we also know that not only that they, there is an incentive for them to create that content, um, 
Facebook incentivizes that that content as well because they want people to click and stay on their platform. So if these outlets create content that is going to do that, it works out beautifully for them. Now, you're right. On our side, we are not willing to put out misinformation. We are not willing to put out violent extremist content. We are not willing to stoke insurrections. In fact, we want to fight all of that for the sake of democracy. And so I think sometimes the mistake that Democrats have made is that we say, well, we just combat that with good policies. Let's just get out what we're doing. If we get out our 14-point policy plan on whatever issue, then people will get the information. They'll see that the rest of this is lies and it'll all be fine. And it's not fine because people's eyes glaze over if you don't humanize what you're talking about, if you don't give them hope, if you don't engage with them as human beings. And so I think that what we found was that if we did personalize the issues, if we, again, told the stories about how not just this wild extreme thing that was happening on the other side, um, but we showed how individual people were fighting back and winning, that that was incredibly empowering. So I say it all the time, you know, that empowering content does sell. Empowerment does sell. People are seeking that. And by that, I don't mean just the, you know, kumbaya. I mean, take back to when you were starting this podcast and then rolling up to 2018, all of the inspiring, you know, one person, the regular mom, the veteran who had never run for office before, stepping up, who never considered um, getting involved in politics before, taking on uh, some Republican politician who had voted to take away their health care, who had done something that was going to have a direct impact on them or someone very close to them. And that inspired them to run for office. And they were winning. And that makes you jump out of your seat and say, we can do this. We can keep going. Democracy can win in the end. And you know what it also does? It makes people click and engage and share. And that's what we have to do. We have to create engaging content that sells good information. What was the most engaging or some a couple significantly engaging things that you guys reported on? Gosh, you know, I'm so focused on the most engaging things we now do to engage suburban women at Red Wine and Blue. And, and this influences my work today as well. When you counter narrate um, a commonly accepted, you know, piece of conventional wisdom that may be out there in the media or in politics, um, I, I remember before the election, before I had been CEO, our previous CEO had written a piece about um, Hillary Clinton being one of the most ethical politicians there's ever been. Now, of course, she's being attacked about her emails and everything else. So the, the idea of framing Hillary as an ethical um, that sounds leader. like Peter, Peter Dow. Yeah. So uh, framing him as, as an ethical leader, her as an ethical leader was very um, countercultural, you know, um, to, to, to be saying that was, I, I think that was the most shared piece uh, we published prior to the 2016 election. And then I would say post-election, there's so many examples, but one of the ones I remember going viral was um, when Mike Pence went to Notre Dame to give you know the graduation speech and the students at, at Notre Dame in protest for him being chosen, um, 
they they stood up and walked out and we were expecting something like that to happen. So we were ready with the video. We were the first outlet to push it out. And I think we nearly crashed our site. It was just so what people needed to see that sign of resistance. I just want to ask you about one other thing before we get to red, wine, and blue, because I just noticed that you're part of this Leap Ambassadors community. What was that? So I have always, in every single position I have had throughout my career, I have always been that girl saying, well, how do we know we're making a difference? I can't sleep at night if I don't know what we're doing is actually having the impact that we want. And the Leap Ambassadors community is a community of leaders who work throughout, really not so much in politics, that's part of it, but throughout philanthropy, NGOs, uh, a lot of charitable organizations that are doing service delivery for vulnerable populations, um, people whose lives depend on what they're doing. And um, it is a community of leaders that asks ourselves hard questions about what does it mean to be a high-performing organization when it comes to our leadership, to our programs, how we measure our outcomes. We need to be as rigorous about that as, as our missions demand, because it is true that this work, um, no matter which aspect of, of, it, of it you're approaching, you know, lives are on the line. Democracy is on the line. And so it's not enough to sort of feel good about what we're doing in general. We really need to know we're making a difference. So I'm still a part of that community and it's a privilege to be able to hold myself accountable along with other leaders to that end. What's the founding story for Red Wine and Blue? So as we have uh, touched on here, I have worked in politics my whole career. And after living in DC for a little bit more than a decade, uh, my husband and I decided to move to his home state of Ohio and to live where we now live. We wanted to move back to start a family. And so we did that. But I was continuing to commute back to D.C. and work for these organizations that we've discussed. And I had it going pretty good. I had started a family living in a great suburb, raising kids around family, um, but still getting to have this exciting career back in D.C., then the 2018 elections rolled around and I became really excited about this, this storyline that was coming out of the elections of all these suburban women, women who had never been engaged politically. And that was so exciting to me as, a, as someone who'd been politically engaged for a long time, you know, as a suburban mom. And so the, the elections happen. It turns out out of the 43 House seats that Democrats flipped in 2018, 38 of those districts were suburban districts. And women had played this leading role, both in terms of suburban women breaking up with the Republican Party, as well as those who maybe they weren't Republicans before, but they were getting off the sidelines and becoming really involved and, and really taking politics into their own hands. And so I saw that and I was intrigued, but I was also very disappointed in what had happened in my own state of Ohio. And when I dug into the data and tried to square these two things, wait, I thought suburban women had come on strong. What happened? There was this backlash to Trump in 2018. Why didn't that happen here? It was very clear from the data, actually, that suburban women had not overperformed in my home state of Ohio, as they had in so many other places to create this change. And so to me, that looked like a gap 
right? That's what I'm always looking for. Like, well, what's missing here? Why didn't that happen? Why is this different than everywhere else? And so I wanted to better understand what was going on all across suburban Ohio and what was going on with women in these communities in particular. It occurred to me that if I could figure out how to engage by creating stronger communications and organizing infrastructure that was speaking specifically to this demographic of women. And if we could, you know, make it happen here in Ohio with a very concerted, intentional effort in the 2020 election cycle, that we were likely to learn some things that would be highly relevant to Democrats everywhere coming off of 2020. I had to believe that Trump would lose. I mean, we just have to believe that every day, right? Getting up throughout the 2020 cycle. But I knew that after 2020, everyone was going to be asking this question. Okay, suburban women, they become involved in politics. What happens now that Trump is not president anymore? Are these women going to go back to their old ways? How, are, are they going to stay engaged or not? So I had... To me, that was just a really big incentive, not only for figuring out what was going on in my home state of Ohio, as well as solving this problem of sustaining engagement among suburban women beyond 2020, which is one of those big, important, hefty problems that Democrats are needing to answer right now. So we ended up piloting Red Wine and Blue in the 2019 municipal elections. What convinced me besides the data to go all in and do this? Like I quit my job in national politics. I wasn't sure exactly what I was gonna doing. I, I just knew that I had to do something. Um, and I kept meeting these women as I traveled across the suburbs of Ohio who exactly fit this profile of women who had never been involved in politics before, but they were finding each other in their local communities and making a difference, getting involved on issues and races. And what was amazing to me is that this was happening in these hyper-local communities everywhere, and none of them knew about each other. And so I saw a huge opportunity to connect them, to amplify them, and to get them in as strategic ways possible as we amplified them to get them to tap into their networks. So this is where it comes into this communications infrastructure where we, the people, are the infrastructure. So suburban women are very connected to each other, you know, in our communities, super active. A lot of these women may be political outsiders, but they are community insiders, right? Whether that's PTA, anything else. And so I thought, wow, what power there would be if we could get these women to own that power that they have, to recognize it and tap into it um, by uh, sharing information and organizing within those networks. And if they're doing it at a broader scale, because they're all connected to each other across the state. So we engaged in the 2019 municipal elections. We found that by amplifying these women, these local authentic messengers talking about politics in ways that are very, very relatable to other suburban women and getting them to tap into their networks by you know, texting and calling the people that they know to engage. We had a lot of success increasing turnout in those races where we focused. We increased turnout by about 12% in those races. We found when we analyzed who was in the networks of these women, 
that more than half of the women in their networks were persuasion targets, not just the usual suspects that Democrats were traditionally reaching through campaigns. So we were creating a new way of, of engaging. It all started with the name. I mean, we're called red wine and blue. We're really trying to create a different way of engaging in politics, trying to, for women who maybe thought, ugh, politics, not my thing. And let's be honest, there's a lot of people out there who feel that way. And if we're going to make the change that we need, we're going to need to be able to engage more people in something that has a negative stigma around it. And so red wine and blue is about demystifying politics, making it all much more approachable. We create content that is super relatable. It doesn't look like it's coming from a traditional political organization. It looks like it's coming from a friend. We have a podcast called The Suburban Women Problem, where it is three suburban moms, two former Republican suburban moms, another um, mom out of Georgia who flipped a state legislative seat in 2018, first Black woman to ever represent her suburban district. And they talk about what's going on in politics, but in a way that it feels like, you know, you're sitting around drinking a glass of wine with your friends. And so we are inviting women into this conversation and we are giving them opportunities to connect with each other, to take action together, whether that's using our purchasing power, our voices in terms of countering narratives about who suburban, really, suburban women really are. In the 2020 election, you know, Trump and the Republicans wanted to say that we were suburban housewives who they would just be able to control by saying, hey, come on, women, please like me. And we wanted to show that, no, we have a mind of our own. And so day in and day out, we are about creating a community that is not top down. We are community driven and very much is by, for and mobilizing suburban women. In 2020, we grew statewide. Um, we organically grew also nationally in, in 2020. We have a Facebook group that grew to over 200,000 women during the course of the election. And we just kind of hit on one of those moments where a lot of people were talking about suburban women and a lot of suburban women didn't like the way that President Trump was talking about us. And they wanted to find other women who felt the same way too. So day in and day out, we are equipping these women with good information that they can share into their feeds. Many of them live in places where Trump flags are still flying. You know, as we always say, you know, our Facebook group is called Sweep by Red Wine and Blue. And Sweep stands for suburban women, empowered, engaged, and pissed. And we say that, you know, we, we were successful in sweeping out Trump. Now it's time to sweep out Trumpism. I wouldn't mind Trumpism being swept out. I would invite you to join our Facebook group, but it is exclusively women. Well, I'll have to <laughs> talk someone else into it then. <laughs> when you're starting something like this, there's this perennial question about what kind of organization to start. And you were well schooled in, in some of this before. Did you start a PAC? Did you start a nonprofit? Did you start a company? What did you decide on? Uh, we are a nonprofit with a 501c4 designation, and that was just perfect for us. So, being a 501c4 means that you need to have a primary purpose that is um, educational, that's not political or partisan. And for us, since we are really trying to bring women together and make them feel more confident as influencers in their community and give them good information and, and training and content to do that, 
that's the perfect uh, vehicle for us. That's our primary purpose. But also as a 501c4 organization rather than a 501c3, you can engage in political races. And that was something that we absolutely wanted to be able to do too, because suburban women as a voting block are so critical to the outcome in so many of these races, because the suburbs are the battleground. That Those are really the areas that, you know, our rural areas across America have become redder, our cities have become bluer. And here we have these purple areas that are becoming um, bluer in these suburban areas, but they are the battleground. And we knew that we needed to be, be able to engage in these political races. So does that mean you have to raise money and spend money? What are the activities? Have you built up a staff? Tell me about the internals a little bit. Yeah, sure. So we have about 10 women on our team now. And we also, and then we have a whole lot of volunteers that work with us at you know, everything from helping to moderate Facebook groups to helping organize and speak at events and um, support the outreach of other women. Basically, our team breaks down into our content team and our organizing team. And organizing also is where our community team lives in terms of facilitating uh, community online for women to connect. Organizing includes both organizing online in terms of actions that we might take to hold politicians accountable or exercise our purchasing power as suburban women to hold corporations accountable, as well as offline activities. Um, Here in Ohio, we had hundreds of suburban women sign a letter to the Ohio Realtors Association asking them to no longer support politicians that undermine DEI values, diversity, equity, inclusion. You know, so many corporations have been coming out with these statements opposing racism and supporting equity and in support of DEI. And many of them are holding summits even in support of those values. The Realtors Association had one of those recently in Ohio. And so we went and we said, unfortunately, a lot of politicians you're funding are supporting legislation that goes against those values specifically to try to censor teachers and ban any conversations about race in our classrooms, conversations that need to be had. So how about get on board with us? You know, and then we followed that up with an in-person event where women showed up with cookies and copies of the letter and handed it out as realtors went into the summit, which led to a meeting with the CEO. And we're now um, working on next steps to um, get, get a question on their questionnaire um, to hold them accountable. So we, we do both online and offline organizing. Now, our content team is also really important to all of this. We generate a lot of video. I mentioned our podcast. Our content sets the tone for everything that we do and tells women that engaging with us is going to be something different. And it also allows them to see themselves in the content because as you might suspect, our, our budget does not allow for paid actors to um, play a big role in our content production, and we wouldn't want that anyway. So suburban women themselves speaking up in their communities are constantly featured in our content, which is important to us because we think that sharing personal stories is ultimately the best way to influence others. You mentioned uh, 200,000 people on a Facebook group. That's a lot. It is a lot. What are some other measurements of how of your reach, who, you know, who, how big is this group across your state and nationally on other forums? How's it going in terms of building a voice? Yeah. So you really cannot just be on one platform. Um, 
not only because not everyone's on it, because most people are on Facebook, but on any given platform, people are not going to see everything that you put up. Just depends on, you know, what Facebook decides to put in their feed. Same with Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and everything else. So you got to be everywhere, which we are. We have um, significant followings across all of the social channels. We also are constantly building our email list. We send out a weekly newsletter appropriately called the cul-de-sac to keep everyone up to date on what's going on in the community, as well as to highlight members of the community that are just crushing it in their local communities and provide an example for us all. We even have an advice column in there for suburban women as we look at three issues together. Um, and then our, our, podcast now too, which is getting downloaded more and more every day. All of these are ways for us to connect with the women already in our community and the women beyond it. And also these are things that the women in our community can share with other women to introduce them to a different way of doing politics that might feel more relatable for them. And then once in our community, we are providing opportunities for action. We hold events every week, everything from inspiring social hours where people talk about what they're doing in their community and get advice. We have something that we call troublemaker trainings on Zoom every week where women come and they talk about this is what we did at our school board meeting that worked to push back. Here's what we're hearing. And we provide all kinds of just practical advice that we have seen work time and time again in these communities. Um, and then we also provide individual take action opportunities based on things that might be in the news, but where suburban women in particular um, could have a unique influence. You came to this startup with a lot of experience in political content and publishing and activism and politics, what did you learn new doing this that you didn't know coming in? You know, when I worked in DC, we would always try to understand what was going on, you know, out there in America through polling and focus groups. And I think I relied too much on that data. I mean, something that I have learned too is that even with the highest quality, perfectly executed poll or focus group, the information gathered from that is only true for those people in the moment that they were answering questions. And what is so amazing to me about having access to this huge community of suburban women that are not just anonymous people that we are engaging with every day, because we're doing this online, offline, at a local level, collectively, we're working with individual members, is that at any given time, I can turn to this community and ask a question or scroll through what people are talking about and how they're talking about a given issue. And we can know sort of how it felt last week versus how it feels today, or and, and we'll know a little bit more tomorrow. And so that real time, I mean, look, I think, you know, a lot of people in politics and the analytics folks would, would call that my real time data, which it is, but it's highly relational and it is so much more valuable to me. And I, I had no idea coming into this. I think I sort of before thought of that as maybe like the soft stuff, you know, like we have our data and then, okay, now we're informed we have our data. Let's go, you know, build some relationships based on what we've learned. No. Like you are getting data 
all the time out of every interaction, out of every conversation. And the value of that has just blown me away. It surprises and delights me every day. In the run-up to 2018, the energy on the left as a result of the outrage about Trump was so high. Political participation in your group, as you said, drove a lot of the results in that election. And I think with Trump on the ballot in 2020, something similar happened, maybe not everywhere, but in a lot of places. What is the data that you're collecting in this real-time fashion telling you about what's coming up in front of us, which is the typically tough midterm after you have power? Do you think suburban women perform for Democrats as they need to going forward? What's your sense? Is that still in the balance? So ever since Joe Biden was elected, that has been the thing that worries me day in and day out. But it's also the thing that keeps me going because I see evidence that this was not just a something that happened while Trump was in office. Here's what I think a lot of people miss. Yes, Trump spurred into action so many women to a greater level of everything from just a greater level of awareness about oh politics that actually affects me um, and whether it shifted their votes from Republican to Democrat or independent to Democrat or it got them to be much, much more engaged politically. That is not something that just happens in a vacuum. It is, it is a, a first step on a shift that happens in women's lives overall. Like once you become more aware, you don't then stop having that awareness when he leaves office. This has been the beginning of a journey for so many women. They have met other women, whether online or in person. And so at Red, Wine & Blue, what we see as our day in, day out mission is to sustain women on that journey, to continue to provide that sense of community and meaning and ability to make a difference. Now, I will say that I don't think I or anyone else could have predicted the extent to which um, Trump's, you know, as, as we've said, Trump will not be on, on the ballot this year, but his influence look, look no further than a school board race in your community or one not too far away in a, in a suburb not too far away to understand the extent to which Trumpism, extremism is now influencing local politics. And I think that Democrats need to be very aware of how prevalent that is. I mean, my phone blows up every single day with women sharing with me concerning things that are you know, happening in these school board races, the vitriol that school board members are facing, the race baiting that is going on, the fear mongering. It's everything from the anti-mask and the anti-vax to you know, anti-having any conversations about race in schools anymore. There's a backlash that is, that is occurring right now to some important progress that we have been making. And I think that Democrats need to not brush that aside. I think that there is um, 
a tendency to say, once again, if we can just get our good policy plans passed, and look, I'm praying every day for that infrastructure and reconciliation bill to get done. But I am telling you, people are not sitting in the carpool line talking about infrastructure and reconciliation. There's very good things that are going to impact a lot of people's lives in those bills, like paid leave and all the support for childcare. But what people are talking about in the carpool line is what's going on in schools. And there are some scary culture war stuff going on in schools, and we need to show up in those conversations and empower women to express their values and um, not only fight back and push back against all that misinformation and extremism, but advance our own positive values. This takes me back to the beginning of our conversation when we talked about how important it is to give people that sense of empowerment. Okay, so we are in that moment, I believe, once again. We had Trump before there was a reaction. Trumpism is alive and well now. Let's not close our eyes and pretend it's not there. We have got to empower people to fight back and advance their own values. Because, you know, a little thing called democracy is still at stake. I can imagine some people hearing the phrase suburban women as relatively well-to-do white ladies to the exclusion of men, to the exclusion of urban people, to the exclusion of different races. I'm sure that's not where you're coming from, but like, what is it about that group? Where do you draw the, the lines and, and just fit that into what is a multiracial democracy that we're aiming for? I'm so glad you asked me that question. So the suburbs are not all white, and you are correct. Suburban women is often used as a euphemism for white women. But one of the reasons why the suburbs have been trending in our direction is because of increasing diversity in the suburbs. That's one of the great things about living in the suburbs are increasingly diversified communities. And that's impacting the shifting values of everyone, including white women in the suburbs. So the suburbs are not all white. It is also important to recognize that white women have the most work to do. Black women have been carrying a disproportionate amount of the labor for the values, the issues, the candidates, causes that you and I share for so long. And so we do this work hand in hand. And meanwhile, very much, I know for me as a white woman, I really recognize that there is an obligation here to, to step up to help share that burden. It is something that I constantly think about. I constantly have to hold myself accountable to. When I was starting Red Wine and Blue, part of my process and my journey with that was actually going to Black women leaders in the state who have been at this work in my state for a long time. And I said, what do you think of this? It looks like we need to increase support for the, you know, the causes and issues candidates you and I share support for. Looks like we need to do this work in the suburbs, but, you know, what do you think? Is that a focus that we should have, essentially? And the answer from Black women that I got was, yeah, you better go get your people. Like, this is work you need to do. And that was being said to me as a white woman needing to get other white women to share more of that burden. So we will always do that work in a way that reflects the diversity of our communities. 
um, while also recognizing that we need to step up. What are your aspirations for this in the long run? I mean, do you want to be a national group where you have as much impact in every state as you're starting to have in Ohio? Do you want to personally, do you want to uh, end up running for office yourself? Where do you want to take this personally and, and collectively? I am a big believer in serendipity and going where um, things organically lead you. And Red, Wine & Blue has become a national organization with women particularly concentrated in battleground states. But we have women who, you know, join our events and participate in all of our actions from all across the country now. And so we serve that community of women. We now have women on the ground in not only Ohio, but Virginia. This cycle, we have uh, boots on the ground in North Carolina. We'll be expanding to additional states soon to have that in-person presence, which is so important for everywhere that we go as a community-driven organization. This has to come from women on the ground. I see us going in places where the suburbs are going to be pivotal to creating that multiracial coalition that we have to put together to be able to win in these battleground states. So more than anything, I want Red Wine and Blue to help suburban women find that civic home to be able to find their voice, own their power, do their part. You know, it all comes back for me personally to that excitement that I had in seeing suburban women step up to the plate, making a difference in politics and thinking, oh, geez, what if we harness that? What if we help these women do that really, you know, in strategic ways and we do it from a ground up way where these women can be the the infrastructure within their own communities? For me, I want to be a suburban mom who has had maybe an unusual set of experiences and a career um, as a suburban mom to be able to bring that to create that opportunity for women to become influencers in their networks in the way that's right for them. When you look at the competition for the minds of suburban women, is there an organized presence on the other side that is trying to take them in a different way that you notice in particular? I mean, it's an all out billionaire funded, orchestrated right wing attempt day in and day out. And it's not hidden. (laughs) It wasn't so long ago that Steve Bannon, I hate even saying the, you know, the words, but that he, um, He said himself, I think, in a Politico article that they were so excited about everything going on in this right wing movement at the school board level because this was how they were going to win back suburban moms. We see it in our communities. It's been here pretty much since the spring. We know more and more every day about, you know, the Koch brothers are behind this. Every major institution from the Heritage Foundation on down is involved in this all out attempt to peel off support within this demographic because they know that they they can't win elections without uh, winning back many of these women in the suburbs who have left them 
over the last couple of election cycles. So I feel that threat, you know, every single day. And I think that if we ignore it, ultimately that, that does two things. I think that the misinformation can peel off some women. I'm even more concerned about the demoralization that can happen if you have such an inundation of culture wars and just the yelling and screaming that we're seeing at this level. It's going to turn people off all over again who were drawn towards engaging in the first place. So that's why it is so important that we see very clearly what is going on, that we call it out, and we provide amplification for the women, for the men, for the parents, for the people in these communities who don't feel represented by that at all. Because it doesn't represent the majority of parents, but if we're just quiet about it and we whistle and we hope it goes away, sometimes they get away with portraying it as though it does. Are you optimistic about who wins this battle if the other side is got its billionaires and and its focus on some of these issues that maybe cut against us or uh, seem like they do? I'm optimistic about it every single day. I I mean, I was born this way to be an optimist, so I, I should say that out front. But what gives me optimism every single day are the conversations that I have with women in our community, from women who text me, who call me, you know, it's the, you know, the woman who voted for Trump in 2016. And now she's asking me where she can get her Medicare for all uh, yard time. It is this ongoing transformation of suburban women um, towards a level of engagement that I think of, wow, if every single one of these women are nodes within this powerful human infrastructure. I mean, look, there is nothing that a group of women who, if we put our minds to it, there's nothing we can't do. There's nobody we can't take on. I have seen it happen at these school board meetings. I have seen it happen with these women who never thought they'd run for office stepping up. And it's not just those women, it's the women who gather all around them. And so they're an unstoppable force and they are what give me hope every day because what we're doing is that no longer are these women standing alone or just with their individual groups of unstoppable women. We are a force altogether. I hope we're around the country as much as is needed. Is there a question I didn't ask you that I should have? I feel like we covered a lot of ground. I hope it was coherent. (laughs) (laughs) You did a good job. (laughs) I could go on all day. Uh, It seems like you picked a pretty big challenge. I think I get bored if I'm not going after a big challenge. So um, I'm not bored. I can tell you that. Never, never on any day at any moment. (laughs) Well, thanks for taking the time to talk to me about it. I wish you the best of luck going forward. Thank you for what you're doing. That was Katie Paris. Katie is at redwine.blue. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. <laughs>